0: Thanks for tuning in to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our hope for you is that you would feel the welcome home of Christ wherever you're listening from today. We pray that this message encourages you in your faith journey to be with Jesus and become like him for the sake of the world. Let's dive in.
1: Hey Bridge family, I am so glad that you are here today and you're in for a real treat this morning. My dear friend, Chris Lash is in the house bringing the word today. Not only is Chris incredibly smart, and driven. He's actually the Dean of University Ministries of my alma mater back in Chicago. But more than any of that, more than any of his credentials or resume, uh, he's just a dear friend and brother. He's someone who has walked through some serious storms with me and my family. And I'm so grateful that he's here in person to bring the word today. So would you help me and make an obnoxious noise in welcoming Chris Last to the stage? Wow. Wow. Wow, that's
0: incredible. I teach at a university, and we have chapel at 10 a.m., and I can tell you I have never gotten that kind of a welcome, so I am so glad to be here. My name is Chris Lash, and this is going to be a fun morning, but before we jump in, uh, I want to communicate that we are one church meeting in multiple locations, so Bridge family, can we welcome all those joining us in Columbia and online, please? I am excited to be back here. Yes, back here. I've actually visited a few times, mostly because I was bitter, because uh, Ian and I were friends in Chicagoland, and then all of a sudden he had to come down to Tennessee, and I was like, who are these people that poached him and who are these people that, that he likes a lot? And so I had to come down and check it out for myself and I did not want to like any of you, honestly. <laughs> I, that's not even a lie. I didn't want to like any of you, but son of a gun, you guys won me over. You all are actually incredible. And not just actually, I want to take a specific moment to laud your staff and culture and volunteers. Seriously. <clears throat> It's incredible. I deal with a lot of um, students who are dealing with church hurt and burnout, and um, they would love, I would have loved for them to come to a place like this, to be connected to this kind of a family, and so thank you for how you've welcomed the Simkin family. Thank you for how you welcomed me and my wife. Thank you for um, the faithful work and worship culture that you've built. It is a privilege to speak here. I'd like to do, I'd like to open our time in prayer, and then we'll get rolling. Deal? This is the energetic crowd. This is fun. All right. Father, I am grateful for not only this church family, but I'm grateful for your scriptures, that your scriptures show us the way, they show us how to follow in the way of Jesus, they show us some of the heroes of the faith, and they give us room to be desperate. So as we open your text, I pray that you'd make it clear to us what you have for us, that your spirit would be present and that Jesus you administer to our hearts today. Amen. All right, who are your heroes? Who are your what you say? Yeah. <laughs> Ian, he's my hero too. I get it. I get it. Did you like that? I came in dress code. Apparently, they sent me like a they sent me a brief of like what you're supposed to wear, and it was like all Ian and t-shirts, and I was like, apparently this is a t-shirt crew, and so I'm excited to be here. But I need to keep going. So, who are your heroes? Like, like who are the folks that you look up to? For me, I look up to a theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He is one of my heroes. Maybe you're familiar with him and his story. He was a pastor in Germany during the rise of the Nazi Reich, and he opposed Hitler at every single turn. In fact, he started a counter-formational underground seminary for pastors and lay church people to come and receive training for what it would look like to oppose Nazism and rebuild Germany after the war. In fact, he even participated in the plot to overthrow and kill Hitler, and he was ultimately executed by the Nazi state just months before the camps were liberated. Who are your heroes? Are they impressive? Are they well-educated? Are they successful? Do they have a significant following on Instagram or TikTok or any newfangled thing that people have? But one of the strange things about the Bible, and one of the reasons I actually really like the Bible, is it often includes unlikely, unworthy, impossible heroes. And we often get used to hearing that as Christians, unlikely, upside down, stuff like that, things that flip our paradigms. But it's like really true. This is not somebody that people are writing books on. Sometimes the heroes in the Bible sound more like villains at first, especially. And so, we'll meet our hero this morning, early in Israel's story. If you have your Bibles, turn in them to Joshua 2, or power them on, or just Google, where is Joshua 2? And it'll take you there. Google's incredible. So, uh, open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2. I'll give you a moment. It's pretty early on. It's like the first third. Joshua chapter 2. All right, I'm on a clock, so we're jumping right in. Then, the verse starts out, then, two, verse one, then we are on a roll. Joshua, son of Nun, secretly, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Okay. We need to talk about that word. That is in the Bible. That's a real place. Uh, my email is pastorian@bridge.tv. if you don't like that. I can't believe he said that. Well, it's here. So, but students, it doesn't give you permission. Anyway, I need to write it in. Okay. So it says, go look over the land. He said, especially Jericho. So here's where we are in the story of Israel. Moses has just died, and he has appointed a new commander-in-chief, Joshua, to take the next generation of Israel into the promised land, to fulfill the promise that God promised to Abraham eons ago. And so this new commander, Joshua, has just sent two spies on a covert mission to seek out, especially Jericho, to gather intel and report back. This is supposed to be secret CIA level type stuff. Nobody is supposed to know that Israel is even sniffing out the land, let alone someone's already there. And so here we'll see in the next verse we're going to meet our hero. So they, the spies, went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. So we are now introduced to our heroine, Rahab. And what's the first thing we hear in the text? That she's a prostitute. A prostitute? Really? Our hero is a prostitute? Yes, our hero is a sex worker. Here's what we need to remember. No little girl dreams of being a prostitute. That's in no one's career fair. It's not in anyone's LinkedIn suggested jobs. That's not exactly how it works. Rahab didn't choose this line of work because it sounded appealing. In that time, there were no female-owned businesses. Women were not on the cover of Forbes magazine. She wasn't gracing 30 under 30. They did not even have the ability most often to own property. So she was not making money on her own in a respectable way. In fact, if a woman was unmarried for whatever reason, whether her husband died or her husband divorced her for not providing children as if it's her choice, or in some cases, in some cases, if a woman was abused or exploited when she was young, she was deemed unmarriageable. If she was unmarried, she had zero protection, zero provision, zero financial security. There was no social safety net. Prostitution was the social safety net. So it was not uncommon for women to be forced societally into prostitution and exploitation, especially in the temple. Here's the point. Rahab is not a prostitute because everything is going well for her. but because something has gone terribly wrong. She's using her body for money, not because she wants to, but because this woman, this hero that we are meeting is just surviving. But if you're a Jewish reader, if you're a good little Jewish boy or Jewish girl and you're reading the book of Joshua for the first time, you come across Rahab the prostitute who welcomed the spies into her home and you immediately assume that you've met the villain of the story. You immediately assume you've met the female version of Goliath. She, this woman, is obviously going to rat them out. She obviously knows nothing of Yahweh and with that past that she has, she is a distinct liability and she is in herself unclean and unworthy and not the kind of person that you'd see having any role in God's plan. I mean, this woman has three strikes against her. The first, she's a Canaanite. She's literally the enemy. She's an enemy on on, on her own soil who would not want to be displaced. The second strike against her is that she's a woman. She has no rights, no power, no authority, no money. She has nothing. The third strike against her is that she's a prostitute. She is fundamentally unreliable. She keeps secrets for a living. She can't be trusted. Her whole profession is sus. Nothing about this woman says anything like she can be here. Let's see what happens in verse 2. Verse 2, the king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So, the the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Strange that he knows who she is and where she's at. I won't speculate anymore on that. And he says, bring the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. Okay, I love that the Bible pulls zero punches. Zero punches, you can read about the, the disciples, you can read about anybody in the Bible, and the Bible's like, and they were terrible. But I want you to see that the Bible here gives us an indication that apparently the spies were terrible at their job. The king knows who they are, where they're from, where to find them, and what their mission is. These are like the four basics of spy craft. They have, he's like, he's like, God, what did I just see? Yeah, go them, go find them. They're terrible at their job. In fact, it reminds me of when you go play, have you ever ever played hide and seek with little kids? You play hide and seek and I don't know, their brains aren't fully developed and they end up hiding in ways like this. And you're like, I can see you, don't close the drawer. Or like this, maybe. You're like, maybe you've, you've covered a little more this time, but also pull your shirt down. But I like that you like, brown, brown. You're like, okay, here we are. Or maybe how about this last one? <laughs> you're like, I actually respect this one a little more. Like, at least it's the size of the kid, you know? It's like the king knows exactly who they are, where they are, their mission, and what they're trying to do. And he says, we can't have any of that. And so the king sends soldiers to Rahab's house. And what does Rahab do? Verse 4. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. When the guards came to find the spies, obeying the king, they came to find the spies, she throws them off the trail. They show up at her door and they say, hey, we heard you have these two spies, we'd like them. And she actually lies to the guards and says, oh, you just missed them. You should run off and get them. They just left the city to go report back. So if you hurry up, you'll be able to catch them. And so the guards run off after the spies and the gate shuts behind them and the spies are locked now in the city with Rahab. Now this is a huge moment in the story This is a huge moment in the story. It's the climax of the story. Instead of ratting them out, Rahab commits treason. She turned on her own people. She's harboring enemy combatants. I mean, maybe if you're really suspect, you're like, you know, Rahab, she could still be the villain. She could still be a turncoat. She could be like a double spy or something like that. Maybe. But like, what is she doing? Like, why does she protect the spies? Why did she lie to the guards? Maybe she's playing both sides of this. And she's like, you know what? I just realized I want to be on whichever side wins. So if you think I'm with you, I like that. If you think I'm with you, I'm like that. I have no allegiances at all. The problem is, what comes next? We're going to skip down to verse 8. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof, where she was hiding them, and said to them, she said, I know that the Lord has given you this land. She knows the Lord has given her this land? Like, don't gloss. She knows the Lord has given her that has given Israel this land. And she keeps going. And that a great fear of you has fallen on us. So that all who live in this country, they are melting in fear because of you. Verse 10. We have heard. And now she's going to recount some of the victories of Israel that has made its way throughout the entire region. How, one, the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for when you came out of Egypt. 2 what you did to Sion and Og the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan and three whom you completely destroyed verse 11 when we heard of it our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you 4 the Lord your god is in heaven above and on earth below This is a profession of faith. This is a profession of faith. It's one of the only professions of faith that we get from somebody in their place. She's not a leader. She's not anybody that anybody would go, yep, she's. we think she might be the villain until she starts talking in this way. This is a profession of faith. This is not a tactical move to ally herself with the winning side, trying to cozy up. This is a profession. This is a conversion. In fact, she is the first to prophesy that the Lord has given them this land. Nobody else so far in the book of Joshua has said the Lord has given her this land, and yet she goes, I know that the Lord has given you this land, and this is basically yours. And she affirms that Yahweh is God over all. So in her polytheistic dynamic, her, in her theology where you have multiple gods over different territories, she hasn't even gone through the discipleship class of like, hey, we think there's one God, like this is it. She goes, you know what? I don't know about anything else here. I just know that your God is above all, which sometimes, Bridge Church, sometimes that's all we need. Sometimes we don't, need to, we don't need to sort out everybody's theological system before they can come and be a part of our tribe, be a part of our crew. Maybe it's just enough for somebody to say, I just know that your God is above all. I have no idea what to do with this. I just know that your God is above all. Amen. So here's the big thing to get from this. Rahab has faith in Israel's God. In fact, she had faith before the spies came. Spies did not evangelize her. She made a crucial faith-filled choice by harboring the spies and lying to the guards and allying herself with Israel. She is openly professing faith in Israel's God. It turns out this woman, this woman with three strikes against her, she put everything on the line for Israel. This is one of the longest and uninterrupted speeches from a woman in the Bible. The author is even like, are you catching this? This is insane. So here's the question I can't quite shake when it comes to Rahab. Why Rahab? Why Rahab? And not just like, why did God choose her? We were like, yeah, God could choose anyone. We get it. But like, why Rahab? Why did Rahab come to faith? I mean, she had heard about the victories in Exodus and the many victories over kings in her area, but everyone had heard these stories. She says they all melted in fear, everybody heard. Everybody knew. Everybody was around. They were all sharing the same conversation. Can you believe what happened? I mean, I mean, the stories were going to travel around in the ancient Near East because it's not every day that somebody steps into a river and the sea parts, like, like you have some kind of an avatar airbender keeping the sea at bay. You're like, clearly that wasn't Moses. Something else had to happen here. Everybody had heard, so why Rahab? Why not all of Jericho? What did Rahab hear in these stories that Jericho missed? Sometimes there's more than one way to take in a story. So I recently went to the uh, theater. I love summer blockbusters. I think they are so fun, like the big, you know, things. You like you sit in front of the screen. You have the popcorn. You're going with friends, and you go out afterwards. Like talk about the movie. How did that? How was that for you? Would you like it? Did you not like it? All that stuff. Like I love the entire theater experience. And so I went to go see a recent a, a movie that just came out not too long ago that had a ton of fighter pilots. If you know what I'm talking about, uh, it had a crazy. It had a crazy. She knows. She knows. Had a crazy beach scene. They had to keep it from the first one to the second one. You're like, there's a lot of beaches, but like, shouldn't they be in planes? You know, like what are they? Anyway, so I went to go see this movie. It had a ton of dog fighting. It was, it was a crazy fun movie. I loved it. The whole theater rumbled. The music was too loud. The fighter pilots were swooshing by and it was insane. It was so fun. I didn't even realize that two and a half hours had passed, but here's my question. Do you think I would've had a different opinion or experience of that movie if instead of watching it on the giant big screen, I watched it on my phone? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I don't have like a Pro Max, you know what I mean? <laughs> like if I had watched it at home on my phone, I'm like cleaning the bathroom, and I'm like, what is he doing What's Maverick? I would've had a totally different experience, right? Like the jets would've gone from like, whoom to all of a sudden like pew pew, like oh, it's a cute jet, this is nice. It's a little pocket size. The context you're in when you hear a story radically changes how you interpret it. The context you're in when you hear a story radically changes where you interpret it. And maybe you see where I'm going with this. Both Rahab and the king of Jericho heard the stories of Israel. They both heard about the Red Sea They both heard about the military victories. They both heard about Yahweh conquering every territorial God that was put in their way. And the whole city melted in fear because they knew God fought for Israel. And they looked at the same data, the same story in two very different ways. The king heard this story and had fear. Rahab had faith. The king melted. Rahab stood up. The king fought God's plan. Rahab joined God's plan. The king heard an either or statement. It's either Israel or Jericho, so put him up. But Rahab heard an invitation. The king heard these stories and he felt doom and despair. And Rahab realized this meant deliverance. The king responded with despair. Rahab responded with desperation. So here's my question for us. Where do we find ourselves in this story? Like, are we the king that hears of the power and work of God and feels threatened? Who sees this nice kingdom with these nice big walls, a lot of protection, and we hear about the power and work. We hear about the mission. We hear about the call to discipleship. We hear about the way of Jesus. And our primary, we feel threatened. Or are we Rahab, who sees the work of God as freedom and deliverance, even if it costs us everything? Amen. Amen. Yes, that's good. So maybe you're here, and you've been attending church for, like, your entire life. Like, you were born here, which is kind of weird, but, like, sure. And maybe you've heard all the stories. Like maybe you've heard every single story and you're like, oh, I've been to Rahab. I've read a book on it. I've done the thing. And, and you'd say that faith is important to you. Like you're here on a Sunday morning. You'd say faith is important to you. But maybe God is like this nice, neat, cute little God. And he has a little box that you keep him in. And you're able to like throw him various things, kind of like a pet turtle. You're like, you can take this. You can take this. You can take this. But you can't have anything else? Like, he's got your Sunday morning, but your generosity budget, he can't touch. Like, he's got your Sunday morning, but the office bullying that you participate in because Gary is kind of a tool, maybe you're like, that's all right. Like, maybe God has your Sunday morning, but your politics, the podcasts you listen to that turn your heart against other people, maybe God can't have that. Because, God, you don't know what's at stake. And our understanding of God is that God's a threat. God's ignorant. He's naive. He doesn't know what it's like to live in this time in this age. These are extraordinary times. Well, that's not on the pre-approved list. God can have this short list. Listen, you can come to church your whole life and miss the life God has for you. It's not only possible, some people are walking it every single day. Or maybe you're here and you're raising a family, like you're the one who's getting everyone ready for school, you're off to practice, and your faith seems like it's just one more item on a never-ending to-do list. And so when someone likes the bridge, when someone like the bridge talks about living life on mission or welcoming the outsider or making friends with people, you're like, I cannot do anything else at all. This is already too much. Come on. That's not life. Maybe some things need to fall off your to-do list because it's not worth your time. What if God can have our to-do list? Or maybe for some of us, there's parts of us that we've buried away. Maybe for some of us, uh, we, don't, we, don't, we don't go, uh, when we go to counseling, we don't talk about it. We'd like the therapist to ask about other things. We don't really want him or her to like expo- explore or poke and prod on those. We don't, we don't tell our spouse. We don't talk about it. We don't let our spouse talk about it. Our anger issue, our generosity issue, the things that we have about others, we, we don't want anyone to talk or ask about these things because that is ours. And so when we think about the invitation towards healing that the gospel offers, that Jesus offers, it sounds like a trap. It sounds like a way that will result in exposure towards judgment and shame, because if anybody knew the real person that we were, the real things that we came from, or what it is that we've been caught up into, then all I'm going to feel is judgment and shame and despair and condemnation, and I can't handle that. And so for you, God is scary. He is a threat. But what if there's a better way? Is the message of the gospel hope to you or is it a threat? Do you hear an invitation? For me, I tend to distrust that God will provide for me. And not like I tend to, it's like this is all the time. my wife just finished her graduate program in mental health counseling. She's smart. She's awesome. I love her. Um, but one of the things about this program was it had a nine-month unpaid internship, which if there are any like Dave Ramsey fans, that's like for sure not on the snowball list. You know what I mean? He's not like, and make no money. He's like, you should try making money. But the budget guru in me like panicked. The budget guru in me, the one that like wants to be safe and secure, that we're planning for retirement, we're doing all the good smart things. Like I'm a millennial, I'm gonna retire one day, you know? Like I'm, like that person in me like absolutely panicked. So when my wife, who is often the impetus in this, when she wants to be generous, when she wants us to be generous, I'm like looking for my veto stamp. I'm like, do I have, did they issue me that when I got married, like do I have one? (laughs) She knows. She knows, you should have done my wedding. That was, I don't know. Because I saw her generosity like a threat. I saw it as a threat. Ultimately, it was like God's plan for us to be generous. Because I know theologically, pragmatically, pastorally, what happens in the human heart when we are generous. And yet, when it came down to my budget, my money, all of a sudden I was like, you know what, Uh, honey, we we don't have the ability to buy somebody Chipotle. And she's like, didn't you just get double steak? (laughs) Do you want some? Maybe... For those of us who drift towards the mindset of the king, there's good news for us. And it's the gospel is actually good news. God's not trying to take anything from you. He's trying to give you life and freedom and love and acceptance. And the difference between Rahab and the king was that they viewed the character of Yahweh in fundamentally different ways. Rahab saw a God that was trustworthy, that fights for his people. In fact, biblical scholars note that the story of Rahab is at the front of the book of Joshua and is an indication that God could have and would have saved all of Canaan if they had turned to him. That this story is not a story of exclusion, but a story of God would have included everyone, but instead the king chose to fight and war against God and hole up in his walls and protect himself. And so maybe today you need to recognize that you've been believing a distorted story. that God's not out to take something from you. He's not out to punish you. He's not out to shame you. You can actually trust the heart and character of God. He is as good as the stories say. He really is. He really is. I think there are others of us who are Rahab, who are Rahab in this story. And we hear stories of Kings and we're like, that's not quite me. That's not quite where I fit. But more so, we're like, yeah, um, that really couldn't be me. Like I don't have the ability to follow in the footsteps of Rahab because I am quite frail. My faith is but a thread. I am hopeless. I could do none of that. And so we identify with Rahab in this story. Like there's no way that God could possibly use me. I am too broken. I am too hopeless. My past is too dirty. I've got too much hurt and anger and bitterness. I am too old with too many regrets, or too young with too many liabilities. Rahab, the outcast and powerless one, we feel her story in our bones. That's so why I, I want to take us forward a little bit to see where Rahab's story ends. So after she meets with the spies, she uh, they run back to Joshua and they tell him everything Rahab said, and sometime later. Israel comes, they march around the walls of Jericho seven times. You're familiar with the story. It's crazy. You should read it. It's a miracle of God. And in the ensuing battle, Joshua specifically tells the army to uh, make sure that Rahab and her entire house are saved. Don't touch her. She is on our side. She's with us. But after that, Rahab joins up with the Israelites. She gets married and has kids. She then has a son named Boaz. You find his story in the book of Ruth. And what is Boaz known for? Boaz is known for noticing the women with three strikes against them. Noticing the foreigner, the outcast, the one who's unmarried, and sacrificing for her. And having immense compassion on someone named Ruth. Where do you think Boaz learned that? Mama taught that. <laughs> Her story doesn't even stop there. Her story doesn't even stop there. She's mentioned in Hebrews 11 as someone we should model our faith after. And then again in the book of James as someone we should learn from faith and action. And then she is only one of four women named in Jesus's lineage. She is Jesus's great, great, great plus 25 greats grandmother. But when Rahab snuck the spies in, she had no idea any of that would follow. She had no idea any of that would follow. Not in her wildest dreams would she think that her act of faithfulness, of sneaking the spies in and joining the work of the Lord, would mean that her family line produced the God-man Jesus who would seek and save everyone exactly like her. (laughs) Have no idea she have no idea. Rahab's story paints a picture where hopelessness, where despair, where high schoolers, Gen Z, where mental health struggles are redeemed. There's a reason that Rahab's in our Bible. There's a reason that she's a hero, and no one else in Jericho. And here it is. It's really simple. Here it is. Rahab was desperate. Rahab was desperate. That's it. Rahab was desperate. Rahab knew she needed God. She was desperate for God to include her in his story of redemption. And she looked for any and every opportunity to get involved. She had her eyes out for the move of God, and she was desperate to join in and willing to leverage everything she had to participate. And maybe, just maybe, the Rahab story teaches us that desperation is a Christian value. So maybe this morning you're here, and you need to hear something from God. You need to hear something from God. And like the stories that Rahab heard before the spies got there, you just need to hear this. That God's not done with you. That he's not done with you. That he hasn't abandoned you. He hasn't left you. Your faith may be fragile. You may feel overlooked and on the outside looking in, but God has not forgotten you. This season is not forever. And that your desperation may be the very thing that allows you to see the hope of the gospel. It's like watching it on the big screen. Maybe this morning you don't need to hear something, you need to do something. Like you're a very action oriented person, you need to just do something. Maybe this morning you are in an exploitative relationship and you need to end it. Or maybe this morning you need to text a friend or family member and just tell them that you need to be reminded that he's not done with you. Or maybe you need to connect to a bridge group because you realize I can't do this on my own anymore. I've been trying to figure this out on my own and I can't and I need people to come alongside me and love me and care for me and welcome me into the family of God. And so maybe your next step is a bridge group or maybe your next step is just as easy and simple as coming up to the front to receive prayer after the service. And somebody can hear what you've been sitting with. And you invite God and in a community to love you and care for you. Or maybe your action item is generosity. You can give to this church. This church is great. I don't make a commission, but like you can give to this church. Or maybe there are Rahabs in your midst that because of your station in life, you've overlooked. What could it look like for your act of faith to be being generous to her? So who's your hero? Who's your hero? Mine is a woman from Jericho from thousands of years ago whose desperation led her to participate in the plan of God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this morning would be just a holy moment where you remind us that you are not a threat but you can be our treasure where you remind us that that we don't even need to muster up the faith to believe in you on our own but you've provided a community a history a bible somebody around us to minister and love us and maybe we can borrow from their faith I pray that you'd give us eyes to see the Rahabs around us. I pray that you'd give us the ability to confess and turn away from the ways in which we are our own kings, building our own kingdoms, and we invite you in because the gospel is an invitation to freedom. We love you, Jesus. It's in Christ and we pray. Amen.
1: Thanks so much for joining us. And for those of you who support our mission, thank you for your joyful generosity. It's because you give that we're able to see lives changed forever by the gospel. You can click the link in the description of this episode to give now or go to bridge.tv for more information about our church. We believe the gospel is good news worth sharing. So if you enjoyed this podcast, feel free to subscribe and share this episode with family and friends on social media. You can also tag us at BridgeChurchTN.